This week, many developments in iHeartMedia matters. C-Drill reaches a global settlement, and earnings come in from community health systems and frontier communications, to name a few. It's Sunday, March 4th. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Nick Lichtenberg, filling in for Catherine Doherty this week from Reorg's offices in New York City. On our deep dive segment this week, we will return to the world of offshore as Director of Credit Research Mark Fisher discusses the industry with senior reporter Jim Holloway, senior legal analyst Julia Winters, and senior distressed analyst Kyle Owusu. And now to the week in Reorg. iHeartMedia entered this weekend facing the March 3rd expiration of the 30-day grace period under which it has been operating since skipping a $106 million interest payment in early February. On Monday, certain lenders and note holders received a restructuring term sheet from Liberty Media and its affiliate Sirius, who proposed to invest more than $1 billion into a reorganized iHeart in which they would own a combined 40% equity stake. On Friday, iHeart released a term sheet to, quote, harmonize the views it has received from note holders, lenders, and equity holders. When Liberty CEO Greg Maffei discussed the company's earnings on Thursday, he said Sirius had purchased iHeart debt at a discount and that he expected a bankruptcy filing in the, quote, near term. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, iHeart was sued in New York State Court by a group of legacy note holders represented by White and Case, seeking a preliminary injunction that would secure their status before iHeart files for bankruptcy. They argue that iHeart would use the bankruptcy to treat them as general unsecured creditors. On Friday afternoon, Justice Andrea Masley denied the preliminary injunction. While she noted that the plaintiffs alleged iHeart had breached the legacy notes indenture, she said, quote, there's no notice of default. I can't get around that. And midweek on Wednesday, iHeart disclosed that its board of directors has approved a new 2018 key incentive bonus plan for its CFO, its CEO, and its general counsel. Also this week on Monday, Reorg looked at the corpus of and recoveries from the Sampson Settlement Trust ahead of the Supreme Court's decision on the Section 546E Security Safe Harbor. The Supreme Court released the long-awaited opinion the very next day, unanimously affirming the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and agreeing that the safe harbor does not protect transfers in which financial institutions serve as mere conduits. Earnings season was at full speed this week, especially on Tuesday, when Community Health Systems amended its credit facility while announcing a 27.5% year-on-year EBITDA decline for the fourth quarter of 2017. The amendment replaces its senior leverage ratio with a first lien leverage ratio, and the hospital operator called this a, quote, good first step in addressing its 2019 debt maturities. The same day, Frontier Communications suspended its dividend on common shares, announcing that, quote, reducing our debt was the best use of that cash flow. Certainly this weekend, all iHeart watchers are staying tuned, and for other events in the coming week ahead, we turn to senior reporter Jim Holloway in Houston. Jim? Thank you, Nick. This is James Holloway in Houston, and we'll be paying close attention to the developments in the iHeart Communications matter. This week, the most activity in restructurings and reorganizations will be in the courtroom. Make sure you review Reorg's Week Ahead, published every Monday morning at 6.15 a.m. for a complete calendar and rundown of everything you need to know for the week. And here's some of the highlights. 
On Monday, March 5th, in the Paragon Offshore cases, the court will hear a motion by the Paragon Prospector debtors to approve a settlement with Sino Energy Capital Management and to dismiss the Prospector Chapter 11 cases. A busy schedule on Tuesday, March 6th, with the Brigade Examiner motion hearing in the Sinvio cases, the auction of Cobalt's Gulf of Mexico assets, the final bid deadline for Mosi and Gasolfi's Corpus Christi assets, and a UCC formation meeting on Wednesday, March 7th. Courtside action includes a UCC standing motion hearing for Avion, the second day hearing for Bonton, and an omnibus hearing for Puerto Rico. Thursday, March 8th, Cobalt again with a disclosure statement hearing and also in Texas and related EFH, an open meeting for the Public Utilities Commission of the Lone Star State. There's also a RMBS estimation ruling in the Lehman cases. And if that's not enough, Concordia, Hovnanian, and Ferrogas are due to report earnings and hold conference calls and an omnibus hearing in the Toys R Us cases. And on Friday, which is March 9th, yes, it's Cobalt again with an anticipated disclosure statement supplement and a case status conference for Momentive. Revlon will issue fourth quarter earnings and hold a conference call to discuss them. And that's all from me. Thank you for listening. And back to you, Nick. Thanks, Jim. Staying in your home base of Houston, we have one more item to highlight from the week in Reorg as Steedrail made big news. On Monday, five months after filing for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas, and after extensive negotiations with creditors, the offshore driller announced a second amended plan of reorganization featuring a global settlement supported by its unsecured creditors committee, 99% of its bank lenders, and 70% of its unsecured bonds, up from 40% in the first amended plan. And Cedril will solicit votes ahead of a revised timeline. Seadrill is just one of the offshore operators featured in our final segment this week, a deep-dive look into the offshore oil industry. This is Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research here at Reorg Research, and I'm here today with Julia Winters, Senior Legal Analyst, Kyle Owusu, Senior Distressed Analyst, and Jim Holloway, our Senior Reporter. So, Jim, the impetus of this discussion is a piece that you actually wrote last week, which pointed out signs of a bottom in the offshore oil industry, particularly you wrote from the standpoint of services. So one, one of those segments that we've actually, one of the segments of services that we've spoken a lot about here at Reorg and covered extensively are the drillers. Uh, from an investor standpoint, it's, uh, the investor has the question of how do they get involved. And by investor, I'm talking about both financial and strategic buyers. So we've seen transactions of whole companies, such as Ensco buying Atwood, purchases through bankruptcy, such as what's currently happening in C-Drill, and, inv and investors buying individual parts, like what happened in Hercules from a few years ago. And those are the strategies that I'd really like to discuss here today. So first, to get started, Jim, can you walk us through some of your conclusions from that story? Now that oil prices have recovered to above $60 a barrel, you know, where are you seeing uh, this increase in offshore activity? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, what we're seeing, and this is something that began last year, we're seeing a pickup of activity led by the North Sea for the most part. A couple of things going on there. Uh, the, the operators during the downturn, operators and EMPs, use the downturn to really slash costs out of the system. So depending on who you talk to, they got their costs lowered from around $30 a barrel to around $15 a barrel, according to some people. Uh, it's somewhat less OSV intensive than either the Gulf of Mexico or Brazil. The 
the semi-submersibles, even though they're operating in a harsh environment, are operating in more shallow water, which also means you can get more jackups to do more of the work. There's a lot of existing infrastructure the companies there can leverage. And another factor is that some of the smaller companies that work there, some of the British companies, the odd German E&P, those are the only assets that they hold, and so they more or less have to drill there in order to maintain their reserves. Um, this has been good for companies with the high-spec jackups like Bohr Drilling with harsh environment semi-subs like Transocean, which, of course, bought Sanga. Outside of the North Sea, I think there's definitely an expectation that Brazil will start to see a resumption of activity over the next several years. Petrobras has done a good job with cleaning up from some of scandals. There's a lot of oil underneath the floor. The government needs the revenues, and so that could lead to pick up an activity. And as for the Gulf of Mexico, um, there is starting to be a bit more positive outlook towards it. We've had Chevron and Shell announce some large um, – Chevron mainly announced some large discoveries recently. And also um, outside of those, you have Exxon announcing a big uh, discovery offshore Guyana. So I think the conditions are, as Todd Hornbeck said, beginning to gel for um, a, a recovery in, in offshore activity. Thanks. And, and I like to explore that, you know, the activity a little bit more. It's interesting that you started off, uh, you know, talking about the operating cost um, dropping from uh, about $30 a barrel down to $15 a barrel. And certainly that's that's one part of it. But there's obviously also the other part, which is the, the new exploration side. So, you know, as you look at the activity that's picking up, is, is this sort of a wholesale improvement in all offshore uh, markets? Um, both new exploration and existing, or are you just seeing um, sort of more tinkering uh, with existing basins? Well, I think what you're seeing is a bit of both. Uh, even during the downturn, a lot of the big projects were out in the Gulf of Mexico, like the Mad Dog project. Those had continued. And what's kind of interesting now is where you are seeing a pickup of activity in the Gulf of Mexico is a lot of deferred maintenance, a lot of plug and abandonment stuff. That stuff was always kind of going on. But I think you're starting to see more of a bit of a pickup of, act in, of activity in terms of developing a lot of the subsea infrastructure that companies need. And even though Chevron um, and Exxon and some others have announced these big offshore discoveries, they're a few years away from really beginning to start to, to really beginning to ramp up the work on the, on those on on those sort of things. So I think what we're talking about is probably really more late 19 or 2020 when we'll see activity from those start to go on. Uh, you know, there's, of course, some big North Sea projects that are still getting underway. So we'll probably see a bit more growth there. Brazil, again, is probably more of a 19 or a 2020 story. And, and Kyle, what's really interesting now is we're actually starting to see some signs, uh, or maybe one off, but you know something in terms of higher pricing, which which does signal some sort of increase in inactivity. You know, one particular example I wanted to highlight here is um, Transocean's recent contract with Stat Oil uh, in the North Sea. This one, you know, when I do the math, it's uh, looks like two hundred eighty nine thousand dollars per day. Um, Stat Oil is contracting um, Transocean's rig for. And what's particularly interesting is it actually doesn't start until the third quarter of 2019 in the last 33 months. So really what, what looks like is happening here is Stat Oil is really almost paying up, at least relative to some previous contracts we've seen, to lock in uh, that, that Transocean rig for a long time uh, to come. So, you know, can you talk about 
what what other signs you're seeing and, and how you're seeing this price uh, develop? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Mark. Um, I think the, the Transocean uh, example is an interesting one to bring up. And, you know, just based on uh, some color on uh, both the Transocean and the Diamond Offshore earnings calls, um, as well as ENSCOs, it looks like you're you're starting to see a pickup um, in, in rates for, uh, as Jim pointed out, a harsh environment, uh, high spec rigs. Um, there's starting to be um, a differentiation in the market between rigs that are moored uh, and rigs that are dynamic position floaters, where the moored rigs are starting to see a pickup um, in activity and therefore rates. Also, um, heavy duty jackups in the North Sea are starting to come back. Um, and so you're starting to see signs of life um, in certain pockets of the market. Another interesting example of, of a data point suggesting that there could be an improvement um, is the Centenario rig belonging to Offshore Drilling Holdings. Um, Pemex um, actually renegotiated that rate upwards to $350,000 from $308,000. Um, so that's another sort of, again, could be a one-off, um, who knows, but it seems like there are some some interesting uh areas where you are starting to see some improvement in the market. Thanks. And and now I want to get into, you know, the heart of the, the discussion here is what do investors do? Uh, you know, how do you sort of get involved to the extent that, that you do? Um, the, I get, you know, the question that I have is really how do, and, you know, how does somebody purchase these assets? Uh, you know, you have a choice with, there's a lot of restructuring in the industry. Do you do it outside of bankruptcy? Like we saw Transocean Sangha, Ensco Atwood. You know, Atwood, there is a lot of discussion about uh, what the company would look like as their rigs continue to uh, to, to roll off. Uh, you know, whether or not they had cash to actually survive uh, the next few years. Uh, but Ensco went out and, and purchased them uh, ahead of... Um, there, the, these contracts rolling off. Uh, so, Jim, you know, what are your thoughts about you know uh, why Transocean, what Sanga, why Ensco bought Atwood? Given the stage, um, so, you know, particularly with Ensco, given the stage that Atwood was in, um, you know, what what's what's the rationale for doing it now rather than I guess waiting? Well, yeah, that, that's a real that's a really interesting question, Mark. You know, of course, with the Insco Atwood thing, um, Arrowgrass mounted a you know a, 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 an attack on the acquisition. Uh, one of the arguments they used was that that um, you know that. It, Atwood's rigs were somewhat generic. I mean, they were very similar to seventh-generation ultra-deep-water drill ships that, say, Pac-D or, or, or Ocean Rig would have. But one of the things that's happening, there's a lot of talk in the industry and among people I've talked to in Houston that, um, that the, majors, the major oil companies that do the really um, capital-intensive deep-water exportations are starting to gravitate towards a relative handful um, say 30 to 35 so-called super spec drill ships. Um, these are seventh generation rigs and there's a lot of seventh generation rigs, but there's still a subset of those that have, you know, the most up-to-date advanced state-of-the-art characteristics. And these are things like dual seven round blowout preventers, class three dynamic positioning systems and so on and things like that. And as it happens, Four of Atwood's vessels were considered to be such super spec ones. Um, Transocean has the most of the, with these characteristics at nine, followed by Ocean Rig with six, and now Insco, which has the Atwood purchase, um, has five. So you can look upon X, X, uh, Insco as as seeing that this was an opportunity to pick up these assets that were going to be have a certain scarcity value um, at a very 
you know, at a very good price. And, you know, I think when you look at some of the newer discoveries, whether it's Chevron with the Anchor or or Exxon with Guyana, you really have to think about what sort of ships are they going to want to use in order to um, really develop these and put them into production. Great. Thank you. And, you know, now I want to actually uh, turn it over to Julia and talk about uh, the bankruptcy option in terms of trying to purchase these assets. And Julia, what I want to do is take it from the perspective of junior creditors uh, who are probably not just trying to buy individual ships in a liquidation, but instead trying to get involved by uh, buying a, a reorganized company, uh, you know, as a, as a going concern and putting a plan together that tackles that. Um, so first, let's start with some I guess failed uh, attempts. Um, you know, if we if we look at Paragon, uh, you know, recently and Hercules um, from from a few years ago, and you know the Hercules situation, the second time they they filed, and it's also not to be confused with the um, the pre first time they um, they restructured out of court. Um, but you know, in that situation. Uh, Walk us through what happened there from a junior creditor point of view or the equity point of view and the difficulty these company, these entities had in, in terms of buying these companies. Sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, I think uh, Hercules and Paragon are both good examples of failed attempts by junior creditors to uh, walk out with the company, but but for different reasons. And both cases involved senior unsecured note holders making a bid to convert their debt to equity. Uh, in Hercules, the note holders were successful in getting the prepackaged plan confirmed, only to have to file again just six months later. So while they didn't face serious opposition in court, their restructuring efforts ultimately failed, uh, and they were forced to liquidate the second time around. In Paragon's case, um, the original Paragon plan called for the senior unsecured note holders to get 47% of the new equity, along with uh, $285 million in cash and $60 million in new notes. Um, unlike Hercules, though, there were structurally senior term loan lenders in Paragon who, under the plan, would have had their $645 million in loans reinstated. The term loan lenders fought the plan hard, and they won um, based on Judge Sanchi's finding that the plan wasn't feasible because the debtors couldn't show that they'd be able to refinance or pay off that reinstated debt when it matured. Keep in mind, though, that Paragon was seeking confirmation in Delaware right after Hercules had filed its second Chapter 11 case that June. So Hercules uh, probably was a lesson in caution for Judge Sanchi about the offshore drilling market at the time. Um, and it probably also didn't help Paragon's case that their feasibility witness was the same one who had testified on behalf of Hercules' first plan, which uh, had just failed. Yeah, Julia, it's interesting that you mentioned um, Paragon. That, of course, was purchased by Bohr Drilling, which is this interesting startup within the rig contractor space, uh, a Norwegian company, I guess you, 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 you would describe them, that's more or less cornered the market in high-spec drilling rigs. Um, you know, bought Paragon, Paragon, announced it a couple weeks ago. Paragon has a couple of the, you know, most high-spec, harsh environment jack-up rigs. Um, what I thought was most interesting about it was um, they have 20 
21 jackups that are currently stacked, and the CEO, or rather the chairman of the company, said that these were probably going to have to um, go to the scrapyard. So a bit of an acknowledgement of the fact that the industry does remain a bit oversupplied, and as the the chairman said, responsible owners are going to take steps to rationalize the fleet and consolidate the market. Thanks, Jim. Now, uh, Julia, um, you know, going back to uh, the bankruptcy here and how junior creditors get involved, uh, you know, if these junior creditors then wish to take control, you know, what parts of the bankruptcy code do they have to be uh, cognizant of? And, you know, in general, is it just a tougher pros- prospect for these these creditors and perhaps equity holders uh, if the company is already filed? Yeah, I think so, Mark. I think it's uh, it's definitely tougher for junior creditors once a company is in bankruptcy. Um, and acquisition as part of a plan of reorganization is going to have to satisfy a whole host of bankruptcy code provisions, including the best interests of creditors test, feasibility, uh, and the like. Um, and essentially, you're going to have to convince the judge, who, mind you, is not an offshore expert, um, that senior creditors are getting the indubitable equivalent of what they're owed on on their claims, that your business projections show that you're not going to have to file again in the next few years. Uh, so um, those are uh, can be difficult um, thresholds to meet, uh, especially if your plan is being contested um, by creditors who have a first um, shot at the pie before you do. Um, and, and even a Section 363 sale, so outside of a, a plan process, if you're trying to conduct an auction or, or, or do a sale in the bankruptcy case, um, you're going to have to show, you're either going to have to make the sale subject to higher and better offers um, or otherwise show that um, the sale is uh, in the estate's best interests. Um, and you're not going to be able to convince a judge to approve a sweet heart sale um, if it doesn't provide enough value to pay off uh, creditors in full. And does does the structure matter uh, of the company? You know, for instance, we're looking one one company that we're following very closely is Pacific Drilling and Quantum. You know, an equity owner wishes to retain control of that company. They they put together a proposed plan or they're negotiating, uh, you know, with, with the creditors and have me and the company has made public what quantum wants. And that plan that quantum has proposed will likely result in creditors, you know, uh, being impaired, um, and, and quantum, you know, getting a recovery through, uh, you know, equity ownership, uh, on the other side. So is, is this something that they can be successful doing? Well, certainly they haven't succeeded thus far. I mean, uh, they're, Attempts to keep even, I think their their ask now is 6% to retain 6% of the equity, have been flatly rejected by the secured creditors in the Pacific drilling case, both pre-petition uh, and since the company filed. So it, it's very tough for equity to retain control without putting any new money in, um, and particularly so after a bankruptcy case has been commenced. Um you know, I mean, that's not to say it can't happen. I'm Tidewater is another example where equity kept 5% in that case. They've got warrants for an additional 15%. Um, but that was negotiated. That was a consensual negotiation uh, and um, was able to move through bankruptcy fairly quickly. Uh, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case for Quantum. And, and, and it's also unlikely that Quantum would be able to convince Judge Wiles to approve a plan uh, along those lines, if uh, all of the secured creditors are opposing it, which currently is the case. 
Thanks. Um, and, and Kyle, you know, speaking of equity um, and, and Pacific drilling, a case that, you know, you're very close with that you and I have talked before on is uh, is sea drill. And this is a case where John Fredrickson is uh, continues to play a significant role in, in that uh, restructuring. Uh, Fredrickson is the chairman of the, the company, the CEO, um, you know, as, as well. So, you know, from a, a company's perspective, I want to get in the heads of, of creditors here. You know, why is that case um, perhaps unique? But, uh, you know, then what can we learn uh, applying it to other um, cases as well, where there perhaps is value in, in keeping uh, management uh, and equity so involved in the company post-emergence? Post, uh, yeah, so I think Cedril is, is a perfect example of how sometimes, um, at least from a creditor standpoint, it might make sense, arguably, to keep equity around. And I think that there are a couple of reasons um, that that it did make sense in this instance. One uh, is is simply cash. Um, you know, the banks uh, for a while. Um, it was known that the banks would need uh, some sort of cash commitment, either from equity or existing bondholders, um, to sort of sign on to the plan. Um, and that is what happened. You saw Fredrickson uh, partner up with with hedge funds, and now the the ad hoc committee in Barclays have gotten folded in um, to to commit capital. And so I think that from a creditor standpoint, um, being able to turn to an existing owner uh, that can write a check um, and do so fairly quickly and definitively. Um, um, is pretty attractive, and then the second the second point is just uh, from an operation standpoint. I mean, I touched on this. Um, I think when we last spoke about about sea drill, but um, you know, the offshore shipping space is is pretty clubby, and it's important um, to have relationships. Uh, and and John Fredrickson certainly does have those relationships around the world. I mean, sea drill is a global a global company, um, and so if you're a creditor um, and you want someone to be to be running your your asset, um, you want someone that does have those connections, especially in a market like this where uh, E&P companies are not exactly uh, knocking on the door of offshore drillers, it's hard to secure contracts. So if you have someone in that space that already has the relationships and the know-how, um, that can be pretty attractive as well. Jim, I want to go back to you and, and, and finish off the discussion here about talking about other sectors of this. We spoke a lot about the drilling industry, but there's a number of other offshore uh, sectors that have seen pretty large restructurings throughout. And, and what's interesting is how companies have benefited from those restructurings or what other companies have done once, um, you know, one company um, ha- was forced to restructure. Uh, the helicopter industry, I think, is, is one great example where CHC uh, filed for bankruptcy um, and they took out a ton of capacity uh, from the industry. And it looks like now everyone else that um, that was left, uh, whether they restructured or not, is benefiting. Uh, you know, Bristow talks about some improving um, results, and they're able to raise new financing to, uh, you know, improve the business there. Another one, uh, Jim, that, that you know very well is the, uh, you know, the OSV uh, space, uh, the supply vessel space. You know, where you see, you, you, we saw a couple of restructurings, Tidewater and Gulfmark, uh, and then Hornbeck is also, uh, you know, uh, hasn't restructured, but now is talking about. Uh, some improved results. So, you know, walk us through sort of what happened there, the motivations for uh, the companies that did file, um, why they did, uh, you know, file for bankruptcy, and then, you know, in Hornbeck's case, um, how they they benefited from uh, those other restructurings. 
Thanks, Mark. Uh, that's a, that's a, a, a great question. Is in terms of a uh, Tidewater and Gulf Mark, which were the two big OSVs that uh, that, that filed for Chapter Eleven. With both of those, I think they just kind of ran out ran out of money given the, the dearth of activity, and they just wanted to make the move to clear up their balance sheet and sort of get first mover status in that. And I think both of those, they benefit from the fact that they both have pretty big North Sea exposure. Tidewater is a global company, and so they have vessels pretty much in all the offshore basins. Gulf Mark, I think, is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, OSV in the North Sea. They actually, even though they're, st- they're based down in my part of the world, they're main area of operation has always been the North Sea. So they made a bet that, you know, a clean balance sheet as the area would recovering would 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 be good for them. Hornbeck is a, is a very interesting case. What they've always sold themselves as is having the biggest Jones Act compliant fleet um, you know, in the whole world. And, you know, to engage in coastwise trade, you have to be qualified, you know, under the, under the Jones Act. So I think with them, um, they're kind of a unique sort of put on a rebound in in the Gulf of Mexico, and I think we're seeing a bit of that. Um, Todd Hornbeck did mention, as I alluded before, that he's seen a lot of work from deferred maintenance, plug and abandonment stuff in the Gulf of Mexico. So they're going to be positioned to benefit from any uptick of activity up here, even if there's not, you know, a whole lot of drill ship activity. They will be engaged in construction work, developing the subsea type thing. So I think things are definitely moving in their favor. Uh, another thing, and let's just pretend for the sake of argument, that um, there's more coastal waters opened up to offshore exploration and development, as the Trump administration is, has proposed. Um, Hornbeck would be an immediate beneficiary of that because of its Jones Act fleet. Um, but of course, given the politics around something like that, I don't think anybody is, um, you know, making, uh, is, you know, going to bet the farm or make a business case based upon that happening in any time in the next few years. Great. Thanks. Um, you know, I really enjoyed talking to all of you. I hope our listeners did as well. Uh, Kyle, Julia, Jim, thank you very much. Uh, great segment and we'll see everybody uh, the next time. Thanks everyone. Thanks.